Hey everybody, uh, Sam Mellinger here, sports columnist with the Kansas City Star. I'm grateful for you listening to the 51st episode of the Mellinger Minutes for Your Ears podcast. Uh, 51, that's the number of doubles hit by Billy Butler in 2009. Uh, That was his breakout season, 73 extra base hits. He was only 23 years old. Uh, You know, Billy's career with the Royals kind of impossible to pigeonhole. And I'm not trying to go down that rabbit hole about, you know, whether he's a Royals Hall of Famer or whatever. I'm just here to tell you, like, on some pretty bad teams, uh, watching him hit and think through played appearances was just a lot of fun. Um, Anyway, the show, the goal, as always, is to be worth your time. This week, we're going to do that with questions about Jackie Robinson, the DH, and Otani. And a nice listener named Mark uh, sends me down a path that I didn't even know existed until this question. Uh, Bonus segment is with Mike Matheny um, with two important points that I think will help you understand him as the Royals manager better and a little bit about where the Royals are um, and, you know, where they've been. Um, You know, we're going to have a few clips from him, including one that highlights a pet peeve uh, that I have about baseball. So, okay, uh, the Stars running a special promotion for the Sports Pass right now. Dollar a month uh, for the first three months or for all of our sports coverage, uh, including more original Chiefs and Royals content than you can find anywhere else. Uh, you can get that link on our website or just reach out to me on, on Twitter, Facebook, email, whatever, and I will send you the link. I appreciate everybody, all of you who've listened and offered great feedback written in asking for the subscription link. Your your support means everything to me and more importantly to the people I work with. Uh, so thank you. Okay, um, as always, a thousand places we could start and this probably isn't what you expected, but uh, we're going to start with Greg Holland. And this guy like is just built different and you know not just because he's five foot nine or whatever um you know in a business that prioritizes uh you know big tall guys um on that mound but he is just i think about this a a scout friend once described holland like this he said you know there's guys you watch and they look like lions but they play like lambs he said like holland might look like a lamb but if you watch him pitch you know that he's a lion and that's good, right? Like, there's a reason that these guys get paid, uh, you know, to describe baseball players. Um, and, you know, I, I think about that a lot with Holland because this is a guy who basically, like, tried to pitch through a torn elbow <laughs> in 2019. You remember that, right? Like, his arm was dragging. Um, his fastball went from, like, you know, mid to upper 90s to, like, sometimes 89. And it was just plainly obvious that something was wrong. But... You know, this guy tried to hide the pain and, you know, told anybody who would listen that he was fine. Um, he had elbow surgery, obviously, uh, rehabbed over that 2016 season. And then the first year back, he led the league in saves, struck out 70 in 57 innings. And, and he did this play in his home games in Denver. It's just it's been a heck of a path for him. He's 35 years old now. Um, he's not perfect, uh, but he's back and he's getting some of the most important outs of the season. Uh, Mike Matheny said something smart about Greg the other day. He said that that one of Greg's biggest strengths is his ability to expand the strike zone. You know, with with that slider, splitter, whatever he calls it. And, you know, he throws that thing like right at your knees and it looks like a fastball until it just nose dives 10 feet or so before reaching the plate. And, you know, that just that takes an enormous amount of faith and confidence. You know what I mean? It's. Because it's faith that the catcher is going to block it, right? Uh, especially with with runners on, with runner on third base, and it's confidence that the batter is going to turn pitches outside the strike zone into strikes. And it is the same stuff that he's been doing for years. 
And he's been doing it on five different teams now, including the Royals twice. Um, look, like Greg is a North Carolina, you know, country boy. And, you know, he does not have some lavish lifestyle to keep up, you know. Um, and he's made more than $40 million in baseball. He could retire yesterday and have everything he wants in this life. But he's still pitching and he's doing it for a, a lower full season salary than he's had since he had arbitration. Um, and he's doing it because he's hooked on the competitiveness, um, you know what I mean? On the work, on the adrenaline, on all of it. And, you know, the other thing that hits me about Greg is just how comfortable he seems with himself. Um, you know, when he was here the first time, um, you know, everything was intense. Like everything was serious. You, you just rarely saw the guy smile. Everything was a test with him. Um, you know, the, the contrast now is just, it's pretty remarkable. Um, you know, he, he is still the same competitive cuss on the mound. But, you know, at least in these interviews, he is just so much more comfortable, like more confident, secure. Um, you know, he makes fun of himself in ways that he never would have before. He, he jokes. He's introspective. Um, you know, I mean, I look like you've heard me say before um, that we don't know these guys as well as we think sometimes. And that's true. I'm not saying anything different. But I'm telling you, this is not the same guy. Like he's just grown in ways that we should all want to grow from our 20s to our mid-30s. And, uh, you know, he's still putting in the work and putting himself on the line to help lose or win a game in the biggest moments. Um, you know, there, there's, we all know this, right? Like there's rare guys like Alex Gordon, um, you know, maybe it looks like Salvador Perez, you know, these stars that spend their entire careers with one team, in this case, the Royals. And we all know that's rare. And, you know, since the last time we saw him in Kansas City, like Holland has pitched for the, the Rockies, the Cardinals, the Nationals, the Diamondbacks. Um, so he's not like a career Royal, Really, but he's the next rarest thing, you know what I mean? Which is a guy we saw in his absolute prime here when the games were the biggest and, and he was the best to do it. And and now we get to see just a totally different chapter of his career. You know, still getting the results as, you know, mostly the same pitcher, but um, a very different man. Um, we don't get that often. Um, and it's a cool thing to see. It also make, I'll tell you this, it'll make for an interesting, uh, you know, acceptance speech when he's putting in the Royals Hall of Fame someday, because that is absolutely happening. Okay, uh, before we move on to the rest of the show, uh, this podcast is free, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to ask you one more time to join us behind the paywall. Uh, we work hard to bring you information and perspectives you can't get in other places. We have the most journalists working the Chiefs beat and the Royals beat, the most combined experience around those teams, the most perspectives. Please help us. Uh, support us by giving the Sports Pass a try. Again, you can join dollar a month for the first three months or $30 for a year. You can find those links online uh, or just reach out to me on Twitter, or Facebook, email, whatever, and, and I'll send them along. Okay, a uh, quick break, and then we're back with some questions. Um, if you want to participate next week's show, and please do, uh, call 816-234-4365. Leave your first name, where you're calling from, and almost literally any question. Put the number in your phone. Uh, call anytime, 816-234-4365. Or as the great reader Michael points out, 816-BEG-IDLE. Quick break, and then we are back with those questions. Hey Sam, this is Chris from South Bend, Indiana. Happy spring. Um, is there any cooler person to talk to your kids about in the world of sports than Jackie Robinson? I think it's great that they celebrate him every year, and I talk to my kids about him daily. Thanks.
So, yeah, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but I think this was two years ago, maybe three. But um, anyway, we were at a Royals game and our older son has just always loved numbers. And he was asking about the five and the 10 and the 20 in the Hall of Fame building. And he was interested, you know, like, don't get me wrong. But when we got to the 42, it was just like his mind exploded. You know what I mean? Just sort of like, wait, there's like 42 in every stadium. Like nobody can wear that number. And, you know, it was a cool thing to talk about. And, you know, I figured that's as far as it might go. But I'm telling you, he brings it up pretty regularly. He checked out a Jackie Robinson book from the school library. He asked for a Jackie Robinson card for his birthday. Like, um, you know, he's in. And we've talked about going to the Negro Leagues Museum um, but he he has it in his head that for whatever reason he wants to wait until he's eight. Um, so I guess that's how we're going to do it. But, you know, anyway, look, like there, there are layers to this, right? Like, you know, the story of Jackie Robinson breaking baseball's color barrier um, is just it's a watershed moment in, in American history. Um, but it's also been whitewashed to some degree, you know, like we tend to leave out like the worst of the nastiness. We tend to, you know, pretend that everything was great after he won rookie of the year. And I I don't say that as a criticism toward baseball or any of us who retell the story to different audiences, right? Like, you know, the story that I'm going to tell my kids is different than the one I'd write in the paper. You know what I mean? But I I guess what I appreciate about it is like trying to think of the best way to say this. Like there are a million reasons uh, I love sports and same as I assume you can say the same, you know, And, and there are a million reasons I hope my kids love sports. Same as I assume you can say the same. And I I think like playing sports as kids, and I'm not talking about like the youth sports industry or like working toward making varsity or college scholarship or anything like that, but just playing sports in grade school with like the buddies in your neighborhood. Like I I think it's a great way to learn the value of practice, you know, uh, teamwork, building relationships, um, getting out of your comfort zone, how to win, how to lose, how to fail and keep trying. There's just, there's a bunch of great things that kids can learn from sports. But, you know, really without Jackie Robinson, like I'm just not sure that there's a great history lesson like that in, in, in sports other than this. Like there's no real equivalent you know, for the NFL or the NBA, um, you know, it's a great way to talk about about empathy, about, you know, the irrelevance of how someone looks, the importance of treating people well. So I, I'm with you, Chris, like it, it's a gift. Um, it is a gift. But um, <laughs> I guess you could probably say like baseball owes us a few, right? With, with the way they're doing the blackout rules and the instant replay and everything else. But I'm not here to try to talk about all that. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, anyway, one more baseball question. Hey, Sam, this is John from Waukee, Iowa. I was just calling after Shohei Otani last night, uh, batted second and hit a home run and started the game as pitcher. And so just from one baseball nerd to another, uh, I just was wondering on your thoughts on something. Um, based on um, the designated hitter rule, the designated hitter doesn't have to bat for the pitcher. He can bat for any player. It's just conventionally used for the pitcher. What do you think the chances are that we would ever see Shohei Otani bat for himself as a pitcher like we did last night? And then we would see a designated hitter, you know, somebody like Albert Pujols bat for the shortstop for the Angels or something, you know, like that. Uh, just an interesting little possibility that I, I've wondered would ever happen, but, uh, you know, I assume never will in Major League Baseball. Just wondering about your thoughts, and always enjoy the show. Thanks, Sam. Who you calling a nerd, John? Anyway, me. I get it. Uh, so, admittedly, like I had to look this up, but the DH does have to bat for the pitcher. Um, you don't have to use the DH, obviously, and you know the Angels don't when Otani is starting. 
Uh, but it, unless they change that rule when, and I'm not saying if here, because <laughs> I think it's when, but when the National League adopts the DH, then it, you know, it, it does have to be the pitcher who doesn't hit. But I, there's two Otani points that I want to make here, though. Um, you know, the first is probably obvious, but it's that like, gosh, dang, like, let's enjoy this guy, you know, and, and not just because we don't know how long he can stay healthy doing what he's doing, but because, you know, when are we ever going to see something like this again? You know what I mean? There, there's more specialization in sports now than ever. And, you know, who knows if or when that trend will stop. But the last time we saw anything like this was like Babe Ruth, right? And what I just said, there's a lie, right? Because I said we, and I sure as heck didn't see that. <laughs> and unless you're far too old to be listening to podcasts, uh, then then you didn't either. But uh, the second Otani point I-, I wanted to make is, I wonder if he wouldn't be better utilized as a closer rather than a starter. And, and I know there's a lot of moving parts here, including that, you know, Otani had certain, you know, guarantees or whatever, or, or requests, maybe I should say, uh, when he signed that contract because he, he had his pick of teams. And and you might wonder about stamina, right? Um, when, when I say that maybe he could be a, a closer instead of a starter, because like, you know, if he's playing a three and a half hour game, um, you know, is he going to have enough to do the job at the end in the ninth inning? Is he going to have enough to do the job of someone who's trained all day to get the last three outs? Um, you know, but I, I think there's enough advantages to doing it to give it a try. Like, you know, start with what we're talking about here, the DH. Like when Otani starts, when, when he starts as a pitcher, the Angels are either going to DH for him, uh, which they've done in the past, or they're going to let him hit for himself. But if they let him hit for himself, in, unless he's throwing a complete game, when he comes out, it means they lose the DH. And That's not an enormous problem, but it does mean that you have to burn a pinch hitter every time that his spot in the lineup comes up. And, you know, he's just such a good hitter that his spot in the lineup is usually second, like right in front of Mike Trout. It's going to be some big situations. So, you know, but if you use him as a closer, that means that he can DH and he can get his four or five plate appearances in. And then if you need him in the ninth or the eighth or whatever, uh, you can do it that way. Um, you know, getting lots of moving parts. I get it. I don't know what Otani's routine is to get ready to pitch. Um, you know, maybe that would be compromised uh, and, and prohibitive. I'm not sure. But just like strategically, I've always thought that that might make more sense. But anyway, let's finish with this one. This is Mark from Overland Park. I notice you've ended all of your segments with Be Kind. And I'm wondering if you could both elaborate on that a bit. Uh, talk about who's been kind to you, what that looks like. And uh, given the lack of civility we've seen over the last, uh, certainly the election cycle, what uh, what can we do, both as uh, Kansas Cityans and sports fans, to be kind? Thanks. Hey, Mark, uh, I appreciate this. It is certainly not a political statement I'm trying to make, but um, you know, until I listen to this, and, and maybe this sounds weird, uh, but I did never really analyze it. You know, like really, like why why do I say that? Um, so I appreciate the chance to do that now. Um, and I've thought about it and I I guess there's a couple things going on. At least the first is we're all busy, right? Uh, you know, depending on, you know, where we are in life, we've got job stress or bill stress or family stress. We got a to-do list saved on our phones or whatever that just keeps growing. Maybe I'm projecting there because that's what I have. Uh, you know, the kids have homework. Um, you know, your parents need something like something blows up on you at work, whatever. Uh, we're all busy. And, and I think that it's easy to sort of get wrapped up 
into our own little worlds, like obsessing about, you know, those problems. And when we do that, it's easy to get short with people. You know, it's easy to get annoyed at the line at the restaurant or, you know, angry at somebody at the grocery store or the guy who cut you off in traffic or whatever. And it, it's, it's at least in part because, um, you know, again, we're just so wrapped up in our worlds and our own problems that we forget or, you know, don't think about the fact that, uh, you know, other people are in their own worlds and, and have their own problems and stresses too, uh, that maybe they're struggling to deal with. And, you know, that sort of negative energy can build on itself. You know what I mean? Like what you put out in the world, a lot of times you get back and, you know, we, we pass that negativity along to others and, and they do the same to, to a third party. Look, hopefully I don't have to say this, but I am under no illusion that me saying those two words at the end of the show are going to change the world. It's really cool that you notice that Mark. And, and, and I do hope that you or anyone else who hears it thinks about it, but the, the truth is, I probably say it as much as a reminder to myself as anything else. You know, I, I am light years um, from being perfect. And, you know, uh, th- there's times I find myself being too short with people. Um, even my wife, who is amazing, um, you know, her kids. And, uh, you know, look, I, I record this show on Thursdays or Fridays, uh, you know, just before the weekend. And that makes for a good time for the reminder. And, you know, the other thing, and man, I'm telling you, uh, Mark, I never thought of this until listening to your questions. So uh, again, I am grateful for you bringing this up so I could think about it um, because I think there's some of my mom in in why I said that. And, um, you know, it has to sound weird, but, um, you know, give me a second to explain. So, <laughs> God, I wish I could ask her this, you know, um, to see if my memory lines up with reality. But one of the things I remember about my mom is her telling me over and over and over and over again that she was uh, proud of me for being empathetic. She said that all the time, empathetic, you're empathetic. And she did this before I knew what that word meant. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, it's actually how I learned that word. And, you know, here's the part that I wish I could ask her, but I, I remember just sort of thinking like, uh, after I learned what that word meant, like, does she really know me? Cause I don't feel like I'm empathetic. You know what I mean? Like I'm eight or whatever. And you know, what do I know about empathy? Like I just wanted to shoot baskets outside and ride my bike and play tech mobile. Um, you know, uh, eat some mac and cheese when I have time. But, um, I feel like she just sort of like spoke it into existence. You know what I mean? And I'm certainly not saying I'm the most empathetic person or kind to people all the time, but what I'm saying is I'm more of those things because my mom told me I was. Does that make sense? And, and so now with this question, like Mark, I, I'm realizing that I'm like sort of doing the same thing with myself now and, and with our boys. And this is weird timing, but you know, just yesterday, my wife told me a story about our preschooler like crying on the playground and, and our first grader kind of left his friends to go hug his brother. And when I heard that, I just almost exploded. Um, so anyway, um, thanks for listening to all that. And uh, thanks for making me think of it too. I uh, appreciate you, Mark. Okay, uh, one more break, and then I guess we're going to go straight from what we just talked about there with Mark to a pet peeve about baseball. Um, You never know where the shore's going, right? Okay, quick break. You guys, um, I have to tell you, I am really enjoying Mike Matheny as the Royals manager. Um, His hiring, if you remember... (laughs) the Royals hired him. It was about as popular among some Royals fans as like, I don't even know what, like, you know, Albert Pujols being drafted by the Cardinals or something. And, uh, you know, the, the criticisms weren't unwarranted or unfair or anything. And, you know, it's worth remembering that, uh, you know, even as I say these nice things about him, that we still haven't really seen him have to lead through a crisis. You know what I mean? Like, 
like we know a lot more about Mike as a manager now than we did before last season, obviously. Um, but we'll know even more when the Royals have a six game losing streak or whatever, you know what I mean? In a season where they believe they can compete for the playoffs. But, um, Anyway, there, there's two points I want to make about Mike here quickly, and, and then that pet peeve that I promised you in the last segment. Both of these points are about change, and and the first is about the way he's using his bullpen. We've talked about this before, you know, including in the written minutes this week, but whatever you've known about how the Royals' bullpen has been used or how Matheny's used bullpens in the past, like, you should forget it. Um, you know, they don't have a designated closer, right? Like there's no single guy who gets the ninth no matter what. Um, you know, Matheny's strategy is is more complicated, uh, more thoughtful, uh, though I'm not intending that word to be a put down of the more, you know, traditional strategy. But, um, you know, before every game, Mike is going to tell his available relievers when they might be used, right? And, and this is more about specific spots in the other team's order than it is about the innings. So, uh, you know, instead of the old days when it was like, Kelvin, you've got the seventh, Wade the eighth, Holland the ninth. You know, maybe now it's like, Holland, you've got two, three, four. And, you know, Stomont, we've got, you know, this other spot in the order where the bat speed might not be so great. And, you know, Brents, you've got this other spot with, you know, two lefties that we think can hurt us. So it's, it's a higher degree of difficulty doing it this way. And, and Matheny is, you know, if we're just being honest, like he's opening himself up to, you know, more criticism this way. Um, which is actually part of why I love it, you know, because it means he's convicted in it. You know what I mean? It means that he cares much more about what's best for the team than, you know, what might be best or easiest for him. Um, it also means that he's like real and genuine when he talks about like constantly wanting to self-improve and, you know, being willing to throw out old ways and be open to new things. This is absolutely what a, what a manager, any leader really, but it's absolutely what uh, a manager should be. And again, we've talked about this before and, and we probably will again. I apologize if it's redundant for some of you, but it's still a hang up. I know for a lot of fans who have like real jobs and don't have the time to obsess over this stuff like I do. So um, I, I'm just trying to, you know, here to help make sure you stay smarter than your friends with this stuff. So, OK, the, the second part about Matheny I want to make is, is maybe best done with this clip that, uh, that that Beth will play here in a second. And this is from a pregame talk he did with some of us a, a few days ago. And I think it's a window into kind of how he thinks and makes a revealing point about the organization. So this is Matheny's response to a question about lineup construction and his philosophy on, you know, kind of how quickly he moves guys up or down or out, you know, based on uh, slumps or hot streaks. Um, okay, Beth. It's a daily conversation, usually right after the game. Um, we try to put our lineups together the night before, and we've already done our scouting on the pre on the on the next starter. Uh, what the the matchup should look like, who we anticipate would need a day, um, who's going to have a good matchup, who it might be a tough matchup for. We have all that data ahead of time. Um, but after the game, then we kind of reevaluate what we saw in that game and is there any reason to make a move. What, we'll prob- what we'd normally do is it's uh, three or four games ahead of time. We say we probably need to start watching this a little closer, only from the perspective of is it time to make a change. Um, and then give it a few more days, um, uh, only because the, the guys are looking for some consistency too. Uh, and as much as we try, uh, and, as, and as hard as they try to buy into, hey, I'll just I'll, wherever you pitch me, I'm good. Wherever you put me in the lineup, I'm good. Wherever I play defensively, I'm good. But that's all great. 
theoretically, as you said, but in application, uh, they, they like to find a spot. And, uh, it's a really thorough answer. There. And, you know, he's basically saying here that it's all about communication and information, right? Like the, the coaches take the information and they communicate with the players about how it's being used. And that's all good stuff. Um, but I want you to think about something specific that he said in there, you know, that he said it's three or four days before they make a change, three or four days. There, there was no follow up to this. And I don't know how literally we should take Mike on this, but that's interesting, um, you know, especially as a contrast to Ned Yost, because Ned said over and over and over again, you know, a lesson that he learned from Bobby Cox was to get to the point where you think a guy should move out or down and then wait a week before doing it. Perfectly reasonable. Um, and I want to stress here that this is in no way a criticism of a manager who won two pennants in a World Series with the Royals, you know, taking a job that nobody thought was ever going to end in two pennants in a World Series. But I think it's interesting that Matheny, um, you know, he's really making the same point that Ned used to when he when he used that Cox, you know, anecdote. But Mike is saying three or four days, not a week. And, you know, look, that's subtle. And maybe you think I'm making too much of this, but I'm just telling you, and this isn't me speculating. Um, this is me telling you true facts here. Uh, there was a feeling at different levels of the organization over the last two or three or so years with Ned that there just there wasn't enough urgency, you know, that guys weren't pushing themselves hard enough or or being pushed hard enough. And, you know, that there was this sort of feeling like they'd done it and could just sort of enjoy being in the big leagues. It wasn't the same fire uh, that there was in, in, in the beginning. That's really different now. And it's one of the biggest contrasts with Matheny. He is managing for every game now instead of, you know, playing this long game into next week or next month or whatever. And again, not a criticism of Ned and, you know, not a thing where I'm saying Mike is like Connie Mack or whatever, because, you know, I'd point out that part of Mike's approach is that he can tend to use too many relief pitchers. And, you know, I wonder if, if that doesn't change, I wonder what that's going to look like in the bullpen in, you know, July, August, September. But um, anyway, that's getting off point. Again, I, I'm just I'm trying to help you stay smarter than your friends. And this is an example of a really illustrative change. The organization is in the process of making. OK, now for that pet peeve. Uh, and I have to give Mike credit here because he brought this up from kind of a bad question that I asked. So um, here's the the first part of the exchange. You get. um to normal baseball and you're not every off every other day uh, we're, we're going to have to figure out how to um, spread the wealth down in the bullpen and a part of that is having a guy that we can trust to come in and throw strikes and if anything happens early uh, we need somebody that can eat up some innings so uh, I think Santana can kind of be what we We've talked about with a couple of our guys. Okay, let, let's stop it right there for just a little bit of context. Um, you know, the, the play I was talking about was the Phillies against the Braves earlier in the week. Runner at home was eh, at least what it looked like, pretty clearly out, um, but called safe and, and upheld on review, and the outcome of the game shifted on that play. And I absolutely think that umpires protect umpires, but I'm not sure why I put that in front of Matheny like that. Like in normal times, yeah, like you do this to the side and maybe you get a slightly different answer. Who knows? But, you know, he's obviously not going on Zoom and, and crushing the umpires. But anyway, the, the broader point was the one I wanted to make anyway about, you know, any changes that he'd like to see about, you know, how baseball uses replay. And, you know, Mike's answer here was great. Um, you know, here it is after his, you know, justified open that's sort of like, you know, come on, man, I'm not here to get fined. Um, okay, here's Mike. He could come in in a short stint and be good, um, but he could also get stretched out because we've got him prepared to be stretched out. I was going to ask about, because uh, I know you, you had talked about some of those guys staying stretched out. I didn't know 
where he was at in terms of that? I mean, I assume he's been throwing. I just didn't know. Is he a guy who you could get multiple innings out of? Uh, yeah. Now? Yeah, he just threw five innings uh, his last outing when uh, at the secondary site. So, I mean, he's, he's ready to go. Uh, Mike, if we can go back to the the play Salvi made. Obviously, you know you've been back there. Um, you know what what's the mindset? I mean, is that a rare quality with all that game? I, I know if you're a catcher, you know every situation that's going on. The whole game's in front of you, so he knew the the gravity of what he was doing when he when he fires down there. Is every catcher have that in him, or is that something that only a select few have the the stones to let that throw go in that situation? Yeah, you hit it, soaring stones, um, because you know you you've you're thinking um, a thousand different things um, instantly, um, and one of those being, you know, we're at a one-two count now. Um, we've got a guy on the mound who can put a hitter away. We're in uh, in a good spot to potentially let's just you know cut our losses here. Just say it made a good block. The ball almost went too far away. Batter kept it in front. You could be thinking, all right, we, we we're going to have another pitch here to, to live another day. Um, but I also think he saw, uh, what he needed to see, which was panic from the base runner, uh, realizing that he had just overcommitted on his, he, he was thinking dirt ball read too, which is exactly what our, um, our base runners would be thinking in that situation, especially when you get to two strikes. Let's be aggressive on a dirt ball read because the odds are against us right now at an 0-2 count. Um, and what he did, the ball came back. He, he did uh, exactly what he needed to do. His first retrieve, second, um, take a look at the environment, and what he saw was a, a player overcommitted. And then it just takes um, one, as Fizz said, uh, those being at the right place, and two, having uh, the guts. You can say stones, I guess. Uh, I don't know if I can, but um, the guts to go ahead and uh, throw the ball basically right at a runner. Um, that's that's the only throw you have. Uh, if you look at the angles, it's going to be either just over his shoulder, uh, you know, as we were taught young, uh, whenever you're going to make one of those pickoffs, a lot of times you throw it right towards their eyes um, because they're naturally going to try and get out of the way. But if a guy stays on his feet and runs right back at the glove, that's that's trouble for both uh, the catcher and for the, the third baseman. Um, there was a lot going on there. And I, I just, uh, you see a game end like that after just how intense it was. You, you just can't help but be impressed. Um, but it's just, there's so much work that they, they work on those plays, believe it or not. Uh, those are things that, that Pedro is doing with our catchers. Um, but it's just using your instincts when, uh, when the game's on the line like that. Okay. Um, that was a bit longer than I like to play, but, um, I, I just thought it was a really thoughtful and thorough answer. Um, I disagree with Mike about the strike zone stuff, whatever that's worth. I understand where he's coming from, you know, but for me, you know, calls are missed because of human error, um, you know, a lot more than they're missed because of the way that a catcher talks to the umpire. And, you know, I think once technology provides fans answers and truths that, you know, aren't being seen or held on the field, it just becomes a frustrating experience to watch. And that's why I love the part where you talked about listening to what fans want. This is my pet peeve. Like, I, cause I think that, that baseball doesn't do that nearly enough. You know, I, I would argue the NFL is just as bad in some spots, but you know, we're talking about baseball right now. And you know, sometimes it just feels like Major League Baseball has this like really passionate fan base that is increasingly feeling disconnected. 
And whether that's because replay is being misused, you know, to, to rule a base runner out on a pop-up slide or, you know, whether it's a blackout restrictions or, you know, a dozen other issues, like it just feels like the people in charge could be more responsive and open. And you heard Matheny doing that. You know, Mike is an old school guy. Like, you, you probably know that, but you listen to him talk and you get the feeling he'd be cool if it was still the 1950s, you know, and pitchers went nine, you know, unless major problems came up and double plays were broken up like middle linebackers and, and everything else. But, you know, that part where he says, like, we can pound our fists until we turn into fossils, that hits home, you know, because uh, change is inevitable. And, you know, I'd argue that change is good in most spots, even when it makes us uncomfortable at first. Or, or nostalgic, you know, time moves forward, interests change, uh, you know, and baseball needs to keep up. It is, it is a great sport, uh, but sometimes it just feels like MLB is standing in the way of the product getting even better. So, okay, um, guys, that's the show. I appreciate all of you for listening. Um, I hope we're worth your time. Uh, thanks to everybody who called in, even those we couldn't get to. Uh, big thanks to Beth Welsh for putting this together, uh, putting my nonsense into a show. And um, as always, the biggest thanks to you for giving us your time and letting us be a small part of your life. Um, let's do it again next week. We will probably end up talking too much about the NFL draft and overreacting to whatever the Royals do with this time in first place. So uh, have a good weekend. Uh, be kind. <laughs>